The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want you, if you will, if you will, to make a decision right now to surrender. Say, Jeff, I'm already surrendered. Well, then surrender that surrender because there might be a better one coming. Surrender. That means you're going to turn loose of everything. If you're willing, if you're not willing, you can't do this, but if you're willing, Lord, I surrender everything. I wipe the, the slate clean. I sign my name on it. You fill in what you want to be on the contract, but I write my name on it. I trust you with a fresh surrender. So, Father, bless now in these moments the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, you said it has pleased you to honor the foolishness of preaching. I pray that you'll use me this morning. I pray that you will wreck some strongholds. Lord, I pray that prejudice of every kind will be just taken out of us, every shred of it. I pray, Lord, that our propensity for chest-thumping, strutting, prideful, cliquish arrogance would be demolished. I pray you drop a spiritual thermonuclear bomb on that part of our, our being. And I pray that our minds will be renewed according to the grace and the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you're a first-time guest here today, you're sitting in the midst of what is a miracle in the making. The church that is now called New Bridge has its origins in two faith communities that never should have come together on paper. One was a charismatic assembly, believing and practicing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The name of that place was Cornerstone. The other was an independent Baptist uh, cessationist church, not believing nor practicing in the gifts of the Spirit. And yet both of these communities were committed to the Word of God, and it was through the Word of God that, that they came to a place where they recognized the validity of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And from these two pillars, Newbridge was formed when the two churches married each other earlier this year. Just uh, 13 months ago was the vision birthed. A few months after that, Cornerstone moved into this building with the people of Meadow. They joined Meadow, and then Meadow, the combined group called Meadow, became Newbridge Church in April of last year. It shouldn't work. It makes no sense. You'll never go to seminary and take a class on doing this. As a matter of fact, they'll tell you you're nuts if you ever try to spearhead this. And yet on the back end of it, what we've seen is more baptisms than we've seen in the previous couple of years combined. We've seen salvations, we have seen healings, we've seen people coming into their own and answering their calling. We've seen men and women being empowered in the kingdom to the jurisdiction that God has laid before them. And I'm going to say this boldly, we've just begun, we haven't seen anything yet. There's only one thing that sometimes digs deep in my soul, like a, a stabbing thorn in the shoe that makes me say there, there's just that one danger that I'm concerned about. There's only one thing that can wreck this. Hell can't wreck this. No, hell can't wreck it because we are being um, superintended by the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is on the throne. Hell can't wreck this. The only thing that could shipwreck what God is doing at Newbridge is the people of Newbridge. If we don't operate in unity. Now, we all know the word unity. 
We've all heard a couple of hundred sermons that have bored us to death on unity. We understand and, and, and that we're supposed to get along, that we're supposed to not make waves, we're supposed to be nice to each other. And yet our understanding of unity is really depleted of its scriptural substance because we, we do, we boil unity into sometimes, well, let's just stay out of each other's way so there's no friction. Or let's all start enforcing that we all think alike, talk alike, look alike, act alike, eat alike, drink alike, and so on and so on. And then we, we say, okay, well, that'll bring unity, and it never does. Unity is the hardest work of a body of believers anywhere in the world. It's the hardest internal work that we give ourselves to. And yet it's going to be on ongoingly, it's going to be uh, one of the most essential threads that continue to tie us tightly together and also welcome in new ones that God is going to be sending. And so Paul addresses this, and I'm going to give you three points this morning, and frankly I just want to see what the Lord does. So let me just get to the text. First of all, we are committed to unity. And we, we are so because of what the Lord Jesus taught, what the apostles wrote, and because of, of, of the authority of God's Word. We embrace a costly commitment. When we're talking about being committed to unity, we are embracing a costly commitment. I see that in the words of the apostle where he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He's going to call them to walk in a wor worthy manner. He's going to talk to them about uh, upticking their testimony and their interaction with each other to elevate it to the place where it matches their standing in Jesus. But before he says that, he says, I am Paul, I am a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was actually writing from an incarcerated state of being. He was paying a price for his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for his unwavering loyalty to the body of Christ, for his refusal to play favorites, for his refusal to bow down to Gentile extremes or Jewish legalities in the body of Christ. Paul said, I am set for the gospel. I will keep it as simple as Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I will pursue to the death my utmost allegiance to the Son of God who is the Lord of my life. And he, he, he is never portrayed in Scripture as showing any kind of moving to the left or the right of this pathway that he was on, and it cost him his freedom. Because he would do things Jesus Christ's way, because he refused to do it in the flesh, because he didn't morph his message when it would have been tempting to do so because it would have saved him a whole heaven load of trouble, instead the apostle said, no, I will honor Christ with my life, and part of that is going to be what he writes about unity. I'm going to tell you at the onset, if we're going to be a unified church, it's going to cost us some things. As an individual member, if you continue with Newbridge Church, it's going to cost you. You're going to lose some face with friends and family members, especially those of you that have come from either Cornerstone or, or Meadow. Some will say, I can't believe you united over there with a bunch of Baptists. They'll say that to some of the Cornerstone people. Some will say to the former Meadow people, I, I can't believe you guys are, are acknowledging and affirming the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I can't believe that y'all would unite. Why don't you just leave well enough alone and let them stay in Decula and you stay in Lawrenceville? And you're going you're gonna to pay a little bit of a price, maybe with your reputation. Maybe with the way people think about you or what they say about you, I don't think any of this is going to take us to prison like Paul was going, but we go to the extreme of his example and we recognize that this commitment to unity is going to cost us something. Look in verse number two. We embrace an intense commitment to unity, because unity is not a sermon to be preached, it's a, it's a manner of life to embrace. Paul said this, he said, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy with humility, with gentleness, with patience. I want you to bear with one another, and I want you to do all of this in love. Now let's just walk through this because this is where Paul gets into your Monday. This is where Paul gets into your Tuesday night. This is where the Apostle Paul, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, is not addressing how we get along for an hour on Sunday when we're crammed into a room together. This is talking about life. This is talking about koinonia. This is talking about the, the oikos in our homes and in our, our relationships with each other. And he says, when you're interacting with each other, Christians, I want you to elevate your interaction with each other so that it is worthy of the title that you behold as a child of God. And then he gives us some, some pointers. He says, I want you to walk with all humility. 
That means a lowered mind. It means you don't think less of yourself than you should, nor do you think more of yourself than you should. You just think about yourself as God thinks about you, and that's good enough for you. You humble yourself. One of the most fruitless prayers I've ever prayed was back in my early years, oh God, humble me, oh God, humble me, oh God, humble me. And then I read in Scripture over and over, God says, you humble yourself. Did you know that? Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in due time. We are told to humble ourselves, and as we do so, that will enable us and empower us to interact with each other in gentleness. It's the opposite of being harsh or abrasive. It means that we are deferential to each other. It means that we slow down and we consider the thoughts, the feelings, the needs of the other person before we exalt our needs, our thoughts, our opinions to the forefront of what's being discussed or what's being done. It means there are times where we've got all of the facts on our side, but in gentleness we just, shh, we just quiet. We don't have to have the last word. We don't have to have the loudest word. We may not need to get a word in at all. We're just going to be gentle because the greater need may be for that person to be listened to. It means we we don't strut. We don't assert ourselves. We don't try to jockey for territory. We don't protect our acreage in the kingdom. It means that we are open, we are inviting, we are kind, and we are, again, deferential. That means you and I literally are called to intentionally find out what is the other person's highest need in this moment, in this encounter, in this life that we're sharing together, and we begin to seek not to have our own needs met first, but to meet the needs of others, and we do it with a gentleness. That is our manner. We do it with patience. This describes really a a long-suffering attitude. Uh, That means, frankly, I I, I think this is implied there, as you are walking out your life alongside dozens, maybe hundreds of other Christians that are in your, your circle, that you are going to have to be patient. I'm glad that's in my Bible, because that lets me know there's a reason you're going to need to be patient with people. There are going to be people who provoke you. One of the things, I'm sorry I've been harping on this so long, I just, I'm, I'm so curious to find out what all the angry people are going to be posting about online come Wednesday. You know, I mean, it's just like, I, I, social media for me, I use it as a one-way form for the most part. I just try to disseminate gospel truth. I don't troll your page. I've had people come to me and say, you didn't see what I put on Facebook? I was like, no, I actually have other things to do during the day. So, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, that on, on Facebook, one of the things that has alarmed me is, is Christians hammering each other over Clinton versus Trump. Hammering each other. Right in the face of all of these on-looking unbelievers. And then two posts later, they'll post, ain't Jesus good? I'm like, make up your mind. Now listen, do we all have the American right to express our opinion? Yes, but we do not have the scriptural right to express that opinion without some constraint. And so we're going to have to be patient with each other. You say, Jeff, you don't sound very patient with people. You don't know the half of what I want to say. I promise you I'm being patient, but the point is is this, the very fact that the command is in Scripture kind of reveals the reality that there's going to be some people that are going to rub you the wrong way. A lot of Christians, when they're rubbed the wrong way by other Christians, you know what they do? They get out of the rubbing zone. They just leave. They're like, well, I don't have to put up with that. Oh, you might want to slow down and think about that. Why? Because look at the next part of verse number two. It says, bear with one another in love. Bear with one another, bear with one another, bear with one another. You'll be surprised how many times you're told to do that in the New Testament epistles. We are instructed over and over and over again to bear with one another. You know why that was so important in the first century? Because to to be a Christian and to find other Christians in your community, especially at the beginning, was a very rare thing. So they couldn't move their letter, you know, a mile down the road to the next church. They couldn't find, you know, put their finger to the wind and say, well, where's the church that's blowing that kind of breeze that I'm more comfortable with? They had to come together. They had to stay together. They had to live together. They had to worship together. They had to work together. Sometimes they experienced extravagant loss together because Christians weren't exactly favored in that day. And Paul said, when there is conflict, I want you to bear with one another. I want you to endure each other. Um, We don't think about that very often. 
one of my passions is, is to endure personally, but I love to watch y'all endure. I love the fact that, that the, so much transformation has come to what is now Newbridge Church over the last uh, 12, 13 months, and even before that for the Meadows side as we had a, just a horrific 2015 with so much uh, trouble, quite frankly, and, 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 and disgruntledness and murmuring and complaining and all of the, the nasty sewage stuff that happens sometimes. And, and yet with so many of you are still here and you endured and you pressed on. And, and, you, and you pressed into Jesus and you said, no, I'm not giving in to my impulse to flee. No, I'm not going to go and find cozier veils. No, I'm not going to just find the easiest place where I can give me some fresh air and nothing's expected and, and, and I'm not being stretched. You didn't give in to that. What'd you do? You endured. And when I say you endured, sometimes you were enduring people that were hard to endure. There's something about the, the spirit of endurance that I think is going to mark the end of the age in a way that it never has before. I do believe that externally, as we move towards the back end of human history prior to the second coming, I do believe that enduring people will be the only Christians that remain. Now that may sound like a self-evident truth, but the fact is, is this, a lot of people who think they're enduring today aren't prepared to endure what's coming tomorrow. If you can't endure a Christian that gets on your ever-loving nerves from time to time. How much do you really expect that you'll be able to endure the viciousness of hell when it's unleashed against the church in America? If, if you've run with the, the footman and they've weird thee, how are you going to do when you have to run with the horseman? And so we look at this and we see that we are embracing this intense commitment, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Can you allow somebody to disagree with you without them having to pay the fullest price? Can you affirm that they are good and that this one area that you disagree with them doesn't need to obliterate all the other areas that you share in common? See, friends, we have become masters at division. That's not the, that's not the, uh, the math that the Lord Jesus does. Division is hell's math. Jesus is in multiplication. The devil's the one who divides. So in verse number three, we embrace an ongoing commitment. Now this is important. It says we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is a scriptural imperative. That means that the expectation of God is that I as an individual Christian would be zealous about making sure that the unity that I have with other believers in the Holy Spirit is maintained. That means it is incumbent upon me as a believer to gauge my words, to gauge my demeanor, to gauge my actions, to gauge my uh, face hooks online. That's what I call the Facebook post where obviously that was meant for somebody. It's a face hook, a boom. I've seen so many of those. Listen, it's on me. It's on you. It doesn't matter always if you're right or you're not right in an argument, in a debate. What ultimately the Son of God is doing is He stands usually ignored, but He stands there and He witnesses our relationships. When there's conflict, His question is, which one of these two is going to be most like me? He, he doesn't ask. It, 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 he never empowers us. Well, it's important for you to win this, so do whatever you got to do to win. That's the way we play. That's not the way the Son of God plays. So we are eager. Now let's put it together as a, as a church family. When, when obviously we, we are different races, we are different uh, um, uh, cultures coming from different parts of the world, we are different ages, multitudes of different temperaments, lots of different political leanings, and we have all of this diversity. And the, the calling of God is for all of these diverse people to come in humility and gentleness, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so that means we place ourselves under the yoke of Jesus, and He guides us together. That is the call of the Lord. And it's going to be tested continually. Why? Because there are continually new people being added, which means new ideas, new expectations, new histories theologically, new practices experientially. They're going to come from different classes of society, and unfortunately that's the reality. So not every class of society thinks the same about the same topic. 
And even things down to our communities and, and, and our races that we were brought in. Listen, when we're talking about differences in race, the last thing that really is objective is the actual level of pigmentation that defines somebody by their color. When we're talking about race, it really, we're not really talking about pigmentation. We are talking about cultures. We're talking about a clash of cultures, where a white culture, a black culture, a Hispanic culture, an Asian culture. It's not really about, wow, man, I don't like you because you have more or less pigment than me. We're talking about a clash of ideals. We're talking about a, 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 an unwillingness of one race to listen to the other race so that they can benefit from knowing what is the experience of my, my, my brother or my sister who has a different skin color than me. And so when we're thinking through these things, this is what God says. He says, child of God, Walker Hill, I want you to work on unity. I want you Polly Vickers to work on unity, maintain it. I want you, Steve Pennington, to work on unity, and I want you to maintain it. I want you all to maintain the unity of my spirit in the bond of peace. See, we just... Sometimes, forgive me if this is overly critical, but I, 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 I see that I'm, I'm just being led to deal with an ingrained problem. It's in us. Maybe there's not as much of it in you as there is in the, somebody near you, but it is in us. The Lord says, I am putting this responsibility on you no matter what everybody else is doing. You see, that's when our salvation becomes very individualized, and yet there is a community aspect in which we live out that individual salvation. Let me, let me give you three things because I, I speaking with my friend Jeremy White. Jeremy's uh, about my age, but he, he's African American. I'm a Caucasian. We sit down and we talk about black and white issues when we go to lunch together. I've been immeasurably helped. Um, I, I will say this before I get to the difference between union, unity, and uniformity. Let me just say this. If you're formulating all of your ideas about other races by talking with only people in your own race, you're clueless. You're not going to, I'll speak to people with white skin. You're not going to learn about the black community from other white people. You're just not. And if you think you are, come on now, you're smarter than that. And, and if you're in the black community or the Asian or Latino, you're not going to learn about white or the other communities by, by just sitting around talking with other black people. You're just not. And so what do we do? Instead of pressing in for unity and going through the awkwardness and listening to one another, we just stand across the room on Sundays and we say, good to see you, brother. Good to see you. How are you, brother? How are you? And we keep a distance. Oh, we do all the church stuff. I'm so getting in somebody's business this morning. We do all the church stuff. And yet we all know that outside of the church, we're not going to eat with them. We're not going to go to their house. We're not going to go to a ball game with them. We just show up at church, and ain't it, ain't it great we all have Jesus in common? Except here's the deal. Jesus likes for us to have him in, 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 excuse me, have him in common, but it's like the spokes on a wheel. Y'all have seen this illustration. You got a hub, and on a bicycle, that hub, all the spokes go into that hub. And the closer you get to the hub, who is Jesus, the closer the spokes come to each other. And yet we live out here on, right near the tread. We live out near the tread. We're still, yeah, we're still attached to the hub, but we're miles apart from each other. And that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Thank you. God help me. Let me tell you what union is. This will be up on your screen. Union is what Jesus did for all believers through the cross, and this has a theological emphasis. Every single Christian has union with Christ and with each other solely because of what Jesus has done and your response of faith in that. We have union, we will, from the moment you were saved, you have union with every single believer for all of time, past, present, and future. You are in spiritual union with them. That's what Jesus did. That's a theological emphasis. What I'm talking about is unity. And this is what Jesus expects to proceed amongst all believers from our union with Him. This is a relational emphasis. It's not enough to say amen to the theological emphasis of union if you're not working on the relational emphasis of unity. And that's what we're being called to. I'm not dealing with union this morning. I'm dealing with unity. Union, you don't have to work at. Jesus took care of all of it. Unity, you always have to work at. And it's going to cost us something. But the dividends, the rewards of unity are exponential. As a matter of fact, the entire mission depends on the degree to which you and I will live with each other, with all other believers, in unity. 
We can, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln said that uh, a long time ago, but he got it from Jesus. A house divided cannot stand. So, you have this third option, which we don't do here. And how frustrated people are, or have been at times, because we don't do uniformity. We do not, we don't want to, ain't going to do it. What does it mean? What dead religion insists upon because it devalues union and is too immature to work at unity. And that is an unbiblical emphasis. That's legalism. That's religion. That means you are on the puppet streams, uh, strings of somebody that's conducting religious manipulation. They hook you on the line. You got to move a certain way. You got to act a certain way. You got you got a whole list of do's. You got a whole list of do nots. And it's uniformity. And God help the free thinking person that comes into a, a, a community of uniformity. And that person there raises a hand and says, "Yeah, but what about what the Bible says?" What about what the Bible says? Did you know you're living in a generation where there is a reformation going on in the church in America? You are living, we, we all talk about Martin Luther and the Reformation, and God, thank you, Lord, for that. We had Reformation Sunday a while back. Thank you, Lord, that we returned to authority of the Scriptures through the, uh, the leading of Martin Luther and others. But there's another Reformation that is going on in the American church, and what is happening in the American church is that God is intentionally raising up people who are looking at the, the empty, hollow pillars of religion, and God is calling them out, and He's saying, I want you to go topple that pillar. I want you to go tear that down. I want you to go knock that down. I want you to love people as you do it, but I don't want you to stop doing it in the name of love. I'm sending you to purify the church. I'm calling you forth to address what is wrong with the overtly religious nature, something that God never sanctioned. Friends, that is going on in the church all over the place. I am meeting with people. I don't know if I'm getting done with this today, but I am meeting with people regularly. I'm getting phone calls and emails and contacts from people within a 20-mile radius of where you're sitting right now. And these are people from Methodist background, Baptist background, Presbyterian backgrounds, non-denominational backgrounds, and a couple of people who have recently come to Christ. And they're all saying the same thing, and they don't even know each other. You've got Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians saying, I'm having these experiences with the Holy Spirit that nobody in my church believes. I think it's going to cost me my job. It may cost me my church membership, but I'm pretty convinced this is real. Hey, Jeff, what kind of advice can you give me? Now listen, that's just the ones that are coming to me. It's happening all over the place. We've got people that aren't in ministry per se, vocational ministry, that are having these waves of intense intimacy and longing and desire and hunger after God the Spirit and saying, I know there's more. I know that I'm not supposed to just sit in a chair. I know that I'm supposed to work along with other people. There's this move right now that's going on in our community spearheaded by a couple of friends of mine. I'm just kind of on the outside looking in for racial reconciliation in the metro Atlanta area. That this is going on and black and white pastors' hearts coming together and praying and meeting and dialoguing saying, God, what will it take for it to move from a pastor's luncheon into the seats and the pews? God, how can we be one? And the, and the ultimate answer to all of this, friends, is that the only way we'll be one is if we recognize that we are crucified with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ lives through me. So yes, if you want it, you're going to die. You have to die to yourself. And you're going to experience unity with others that have died to themselves. So we're committed to this, not uniformity. Please hear that if you're watching online and you've never come. Do you know how long the devil kept me out of church when I really wanted to go? I was unsaved, but I, I was really feeling pulled, and, and I didn't have anything to wear. And I thought, man, if I show up in my clothes, and this is back in the 90s, so they would really be wacky clothes back then, but if I, if I had shown up, what, you know, I, I had long hair. You won't believe that. I was skinny with long hair. God, help me. Thank you, Jesus. Um, but I was afraid of what, what the response I would get. So I don't care what you look like. Please come clothed. People say, what, what, what kind of clothes you got to wear? Just cover up, amen. Just, just wear clothes. But I, I really don't care what you wear. Um, I don't care what translation of the scriptures you bring. You, you, you can bring the message. You can, you can bring the NLT. You can not bring one at all. That's okay. We'll provide you a Bible. I use the ESV, but I'm not here out to bow down at the throne of uh, King James or the ESV. I'm bowing at the throne of King Jesus. Amen. That's the one that we got to bow to. So, all of these divisions, all of this uniformity, oh, well, we do hymns only. Well, we do contemporary music only. Well, both groups need to grow up. 
Quite frankly, the worship wars are old, and if you're still fighting that battle, you ain't ready for hell to come against you, because you're fighting the people of God over a musical preference of all things. You know, Paul and Silas had a worship set in prison, chained to a wall in Acts chapter 16. They didn't have a band, but they literally brought the house down in that worship set in Acts chapter 16, and we got people saying nowadays, well, I just can't worship to that kind of music. Well, friends, I I just want to encourage you. I'm not trying to be divisive here. I'm just saying I want to point out these things to say, do you see how easy it is to fall into the ditch of breaking unity over things that are peripheral issues? It just happens. But in the end, I want to tell you that we're destined for unity. Look in verse number four. See, it's already written in in, in the end. We're going to be unified. Look in verse four. Reacquire, church, this lost concept. There's one body. Will you say one body with me? One body. Let's do it again. One body, one body, one body. There's only one body. You see, when man looks around at the church, he sees Baptists, he sees Lutheran, he sees Methodist, he sees Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Catholic, and some of y'all right there say, well, Jeff, are Catholics really Christians? Well, see, that just exposes right there that you have some, you have some serious issues about why, what makes us united. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. Any Catholic that's bowed the heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is part of the kingdom, part of the body of Christ. Um, we see all of this stuff. We see Pentecostals and Mennonites and just, we see all of the divisions God just looks down and he says, these are my kids, these aren't. That's all he sees. God says, the ones that have bowed to my son, these are my kids. He doesn't care what denominational uniform you wear. It doesn't make you more or less of one of his children. Now, it's not to say that there aren't some, you know, objective truths that we have to work through that pertain to certain denominations. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm telling us is that hell doesn't care what color of stripe you wear as a Christian. Because the devil will steal, kill, and destroy anybody he can get his, his jaws wrapped around. And yet sometimes he doesn't even have to get into the mix because we're shooting each other. We're fighting with each other. We're defaming each other. We're denouncing each other. We're pointing out everything. We're, we're doing the opposite of what we're called to do in Ephesians 4. Did you know... I, I don't know the accurate number, but I'll, I'll, I'll be conservative. I, I did some research on this this week. Conservatively, there are at least 21,000 denominations of Christianity in the world today. 21,000 splinter groups. And God looks down and he says, actually, there's just one body. And it's comprised of everybody who's been blood washed from their sins by the sacrifice of my one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who is Lord. How do we flesh that out? Because it is, it is, it's easy to amen the facts, but I'm just going to ask you, how, how are you living that out? What if you as a, um, an individual, um, who's maybe Arminian, and, and, and you come up against a, a, a Calvinist. And the Calvinist says to, to an extreme, these things are of the sovereignty of God, and it leaves you feeling like you're a puppet on God's you know, robotic strings. And yet that, that Calvinist that infuriates you, frustrates you, intimidates you, is genuinely saved. How do you deal with them? Do you look for the quickest and first way to get your point across in that conversation, wipe your hands clean and walk away? Or let's flip the coin. If you're a Calvinist and you believe you've got theology and God summed up and you've got it all in a nice, needy four-by-four box and you meet somebody who's talking about, well, we got to give God permission to move freely. And you cringe because somebody just said, give God permission. God is sovereign. He doesn't have to ask permission for anything. Do you like to make your point? And sometimes that point isn't down, but it's out. It's more like a dagger. And then you wipe your hands and walk away. That's, friends, this is what I'm talking about. It's the same thing with the gifts. I mean, we're, we're in a church family, and many of whom, probably not most, but many of whom practice and walk in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes that bleeds its way into the services. And that's a test right there for us. 
are you, are you going to put your foot down? Are you going to say, bless God, I wasn't comfortable with that. That's not done decently and in order, and I, we shall not have that? Really? You see, there's always this potential for us to react to our differences instead of doing what the Scripture says, which says, no, you have to endeavor to maintain the unity. You actually have to give yourself to what you hold in common instead of focusing on the differences. I told you I was going to stretch you on this, but there is one body, always has been, always will be. Second thing in verse number four, remain in this eternal bond. There's one Spirit, one Holy Spirit. There's not a Baptist Holy Spirit. It really isn't, I promise you. It's not a Pentecostal Holy Spirit. Nope, really isn't. The Methodists don't get, you know, a Methodist flavor Holy Spirit with a Methodist accent. It just doesn't work that way. Every Christian, every church, every theological creed in every country, and yet still there has only and always ever been one Holy Spirit. You have the same Holy Spirit who Paul had. The same Holy Spirit that rushed upon David at his anointing and abided with him from that day forward according to uh, 1 Samuel 16. Same Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit that hovered above the waters and, and brought a cosmos into chaos, from chaos brought cosmos. Same Holy Spirit that is going to uh, uh, birth such a supernatural work and empowerment of people to endure persecution and martyrdom at the end of the age. Same Holy Spirit. You literally have the same Holy Spirit who Jesus breathed on the disciples before He ascended back to heaven. He said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Same Holy Spirit. You, you didn't get a new and improved or a lessened and, and degraded version of the Holy Spirit. You have God the Holy Spirit. And He is the one who unifies us. And if we are walking in the Holy Spirit, I want to tell you something. We will be walking in unity. And the degree to which we are living with a divisive spirit, a critical spirit, a superiority complex, an attitude of, 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 of um, elevation over other people, you are not walking in the Spirit. You can have all the facts right and still be a theological or a spiritual moron. You can have all of it right, all, have all of your data systematized, and still not be able to reveal a shred of the person of the Holy Spirit who's bringing us all into unity. Verse number four at the end, let's rejoice in the shared hope. There's one spirit just as you. That's plural, by the way. If Paul was in the South, he's saying, y'all, y'all were called to one hope. That's singular. That belongs to your call. That's singular. That's very important for me. Paul is writing to a multiplicity of Christians, all Christians, plural. He says, all of you together, whether your skin is black, whether your skin is white, whether you're voting Trump, whether you're voting Hillary, whether you are uh, wealthy or not wealthy, whether you are walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit or not walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, whether you are a theological stud or a theological dud, no matter who you are, there is only one Spirit, and all of you together share in the same hope. The same hope is that we will be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. That He is the object of our worship. He is the pinnacle of who we are. He is the one around whom we all orbit. It is the hope of paradise, yes, absolutely. Heaven, paradise, whatever you want to call it. But the, the, the actual hope is that we will look upon Him in whom we have believed and trusted by faith. We will see Him with our own eyes. He will come. He will establish a kingdom on earth. We will be part of that ruling and reigning on planet earth. He is going to come again. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Every eye is going to behold Him. There will be no denial. There will be no rebellion. There will be no downcasting. Every single creature that has ever been formed is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and to the wellspring of joy in us when we see that every creature, including Satan himself, we're going to watch Satan bow to Jesus and say, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. Every single demon, every single violator, every single terrorist, that has come against the church of the living God. We're going to see them bow. And it won't be, yeah, I told you so. It will be, oh, what glory that Jesus our Lord is finally getting the honor and worship and reverence due unto His holy name. That's our hope. Our hope is not Tuesday's election. Banish that out of your thoughts. Repent of that nonsense. I dare you in the name of Jesus. Don't say a thing about it online anymore. I dare you. Just don't do it. Take up that space and fill it with what I just said. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. 
You see, friends, that's our hope. That's our calling. That's what we're pressing into. That's what we're going after. That's what we're pursuing. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want your name to be hallowed. And so everything about us is saying, Lord, let me lay aside every sin and the weight and the, weight and the sin that easily besets us, those things that knock me off track, those things that separate me. Friends, if we're going to do this at the end of the age, we have to do it together. We have to do it side by side, not just politely nodding across the lobby, but truly living in the oneness that Christ has assigned to us. So I get down to verses 5 through 6. Stay with me. I know y'all were saying, oh, he should have ended on that one. That was exciting. Well, I ain't done yet. <laughs> I don't want this just to be about passion. I want it to be about precision. It's easy to be passionate, and then the vapor trail fades away, and we go out unchanged. I, the Word of God is what transforms and renews our mind. And so let's look in verse 5 and 6 and, and, and just see this. We're, we're effective through unity. We've been given one Lord, excuse me, one authority. If you'll notice in Ephesians 4, there is this progression. It's interestingly, Paul starts with this spirit in verse number 4 here. When he says one Lord, that's referring to the Son. That's Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over me. He's Lord over you, Christian. He's Lord over all the earth. But bring it down. And, and man, God help us, Lord, to, to picture Jesus with us wherever we go as a third party to every conversation we're having, as a proofreader to everything we write in an email or text or post. Lord, let us not sing about your lordship in some vague way. At, at times, Lord, let us tremble at that reality. Let us be aware that he's lord over my attitudes. He's, he's lord. He has the assigned authority over my decisions over what I release and what I take, whether, whether in relationships or in my private walk. But Jesus is Lord. I, I do look forward to all of the celestial sights in heaven. To say it's going to be cool would be an understatement, but it's going to be really cool. I mean, mind-blowingly, you know, kind of Narnia-ish, way cooler. I don't know how to begin to soak in some of the things. Paul, Paul came back from the third heaven. He said, I saw things they won't let me tell you. That's exactly what he said. He said, it's not lawful for a man to utter what I saw up there. And what we see glimpses of it in, in the book of Revelation, and those are just snapshots. I do want to go, but that, that stuff is pleasing. But frankly, the reason why I want to go to heaven is because that's where my Bible tells me Jesus is going to be. And if Jesus is not in heaven, I don't want to go. Hey, let me ask you this. Why not? I've already made you uncomfortable. Let me turn it up a notch. If you could have paradise, health, a glorified body, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, be with everybody that you ever loved in perfect paradise forever, but Jesus wouldn't be there, would you still want to go? Because most of us, when we think of heaven, we think of all those things, and Jesus is kind of the, oh yeah, incidentally, he'll be there too. Let's, let's, let's just say, what if, he, what, if he was, what if he was somewhere else, but all of that was still available to you? The reason why we say no to that question is because, no, he's my Lord. He's my everything. He's my king. He's my God. We want to be wherever he is. And so, friends, that's, that's what I want to remember. When Jeremy and I, Jeremy, I'm sorry for using you, I should have asked your permission, but Outwardly, we're so different. He's a big linebacker. You know, the only thing we have in, age, in common is about the same age range. He's always in a suit. He's an attorney. He's slick. He's smart. And when we walk in, I guarantee you, brother, when we're walking into that uh, place, what are we on the border? We're going on the border. I guarantee you the wait staff's thinking, what are these two guys doing together? Why? Because he's black, I'm white. He's tall, I'm short. There's no way we should have anything on, on paper together. I look like the parolee. He looks like the parole officer. <laughs> but 
But inevitably, our, all of our, and we have intense discussions, and I've learned a lot from Jeremy, I need to learn more, and I hope that I've rubbed off on him, but they always orbit around the fact that these difficulties between races are being played out in the context, yeah, but isn't it, re- isn't it true that we all have Jesus as Lord? Why, why is there so much conflict? Christians, black, white, la- Asian, Latino, why the conflict? It's because the Lordship of Christ isn't real to us. It's a doctrine, but it's not a delight. And when the doctrine of His Lordship becomes a delight to us, we won't have any problem breaking down these silly walls that our flesh and the enemy erected. He's given us solidarity, by the way. One faith and one baptism. Uh, You know as well as I do that the Bible actually mentions more than one baptism, so there's not a conflict of Scripture here. We've got water baptism, we've got spirit baptism in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 6, verse number 2, it speaks of the doctrine of baptisms, plural. And so a lot of people get a a hermeneutical hiccup when they come to uh, this point. But what he's talking about there, he's talking about the outward baptism. I believe since it's in the context of Jesus as Lord, we are all baptized under the command of the Lord, and we are raised back up. And so that baptism is our identification with the Lord Jesus. When Joseph got baptized this morning, he is buried in the likeness of Christ's death, he is raised in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, and he leaves the pool to walk in newness of life. It is an identifying sacrament or an action um, that takes place. And so all Christians in the early church, when they got baptized, man, that was a breaking point. Because you get baptized back in Paul's day, you you can lose your home. You can lose your livelihood. You can lose your life. It's that way still uh, today. I read a report this week about a Christian that was baptized, and um, well, I'm not going to go into the things that were done to her, but it was horrible, horrific. But she wouldn't recant. I mean, think about that, brothers and sisters. Let's think about that. Let's just go there for a minute. Our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world get their hands cut off, they get violated, they get martyred for being a Christian. And we get mad over the style of worship music. There's only one faith centering around Christ as Lord. He's given us one paternity. I'm just going to finish. One God and Father of all. One God and Father of all. I, I haven't grown out of it. I still like calling men in the family of God brother. I don't do it all the time. But I'm like, hey, brother, what's happening? Hey, sister, what's happening? You know, I, I just love that. It's the fact that, that there is something more than meets the eye going on. You know, we have, a, uh, we have a father. The younger the generations become, the more we're gonna be, need to become more equipped at, at helping people with the orphan spirit because a lot of dads bailed. My generation and, and younger, a lot of dads bailed. There was no father. And a lot of dads were abusive, so there was a father that was present, but he didn't act like Father God. And so there's a lot of this orphan spirit. And one of the joys that finds somebody that's battled through that orphan spirit and that fear of rejection, that fear of abandonment, that fear of never measuring up, is to recognize uh, verses like Psalm 2710 that says, when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. And, and, And to think that we have a father. So I encourage you from time to time, just take a spiritual paternity test and just say does the DNA of the father work its way out of my life do I resemble the father do I look like my father in heaven not physically but spiritually is his paternity on my life evident well it will be it will be as we migrate towards unity we can't be like Jesus and not operate in unity we can't be you can preach long and hard You can sing loud and hit every crescendo note that's possible to be hit. You can crash the cymbals and and, and tinkle the keys. You can do all of those things. You can go out and hand out, you know, 5,000 tracks. You can cross the ocean to Uganda or Africa or South America or Europe or Scotland. You can do all of these awesome endeavors. But if you're not endeavoring towards unity with other believers, then you're not like Jesus yet. And we can all do this. And so we get down to the very last, and I am going to be done. He's one God and Father of all, and He's offering one priority, who's over all and through all and in all. All wrapped up in Him. He's over us, He's in us, He's through us.
It's an intertwined Christianity. Christianity is not parallel tracks running side by side. That's not unity. That may be cooperation when those tracks run parallel. Christianity is like a braid. You take two strands that were independent of each other and you work them until they become one. And that's the kind of unity to which God has called all of us. And any part of our lives that doesn't want to yield to His hands as, they're bra- as those hands are braiding us with other believers, that's a place where the power of God's going to break down in our life. The place of my disunity is where the power of God stops in my life. Some of you are in need of deliverance power, and it, He cannot give it to you because you have disunity in your heart with people or a group of people in the body of Christ. I'm getting that so clear right now. You've got all the disciplines, but you don't have the power, and the power is because you haven't repented of that divisive place in your heart. I sense strongly this morning that God is dealing with us about our racial prejudices, and I just want to go on the record here. We may not all be flaming racists, but everybody's got some misconceptions about other races. Is that agreeable to you? We all do, and that's not insignificant. That's a big deal. Because when you operate off of a prejudice, when you see somebody that is a different race than you, you, you're going to tend to lump them in with, with all other people that look like them, and your prejudice is going to land upon them. And that devalues the fact that Jesus Christ made us individuals, that we have an assigned identity and we have inherent value because He created us as individuals. And it is actually a a treasonous act against God to take a person and lump Him in with all other people that look like Him or her and say, that's what type of people these are. And that's not an attitude God can ever bless. So if that alone needs to be repented of today, I just call you to repentance. Sometimes it's ecclesiastical prejudices. Baptists are this way. You know, I've, I've got the pulpit most weeks. And so most of my exhortation and my kind of, you know, prodding has been to those of us that were formerly Baptists. But I want to tell all of you that came from a Pentecostal background, you're as susceptible to that religious spirit as the Baptists are. That superiority and arrogance. We have to die. We need the cross. We have to lay down and say, God, it's not about me. 